0: Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything foreign policy has to offer.
1: Philosophy for Our Times is brought to you in partnership with the new College of the Humanities, a university-level college offering undergraduate and postgraduate degrees in the heart of London. NCH pride themselves on offering unprecedented access to a world-class academic faculty. Philosophy students at the college are taught by some of the foremost scholars in the field, and one-to-one tutorials create a personalised teaching experience. Choose your major and minor for a unique combined honours degree, and study the NCH Diploma to widen your appreciation of the world in ways you'd never thought of before. Go to nchlondon.ac.uk for more information. Think better. Think NCH. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast which brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Can oppression help produce masterpieces? Do we
2: need rules and constraints to fuel our creativity? Or should ever greater freedom
1: be our continuing goal? This week on Philosophy for Our Times, our speakers question the idea that freedom is the vital oxygen of creativity. From Shakespeare to Don Quixote, great artists throughout the ages have produced work under censorship and imprisonment. As Leonardo argued, art lives on constraint and dies of freedom. So is oppression the key to creativity? Taking this on, we have British Iraqi rapper, hip hop artist and activist, Loki.
3: The best-case scenario of this conclusion is in its absolute best is to make more tolerable repression and violence.
1: Former Poet Laureate of the United Kingdom and founder of the Poetry Archive, Andrew Motion.
4: Whether we like it or not, whatever forms we adopt, there really isn't such a thing as entire freedom within a form.
1: A novelist, travel writer and author of A Field Guide to Reality... Joanna Kavanagh.
5: Try telling it to Ai Weiwei, who's been forced out of his own country and lost any contact day by day with his mother and his wife.
1: We would love to hear what you thought of this episode and if you agree that oppression is the key to creativity. Please get in touch at IITV, head over to iTunes and give us a rating or review and subscribe today to never miss an episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Back now to Shahida Barry, who hosts this week's episode. So our opening question, um, and I'm going to put it to you first,
2: Loki, is freedom vital for creativity to flourish?
3: Okay. so firstly, what's interesting about this is we're being asked to think on a premise that oppression or constraint leads to better art. So now what I want to argue is that there is a worst-case scenario of this conclusion and a best-case scenario of this conclusion. The best case scenario of this conclusion that oppression creates somehow greater or more beautiful works is in its absolute best, what it acts to do within our minds is to make more tolerable repression and violence against thinkers who go outside of the norm. And at its very worst, what it does is it credits the brilliance of people rather than to the people that produce those works, but to the people that oppress them. So if I can make it more simple for you, it's the equivalent of us saying that Galileo's work on the laws of physics were thanks to Pope Urban because he put him under house arrest and put him in the position where that happened. It's the equivalent of us saying that Ibn al-Haytham's development of the idea that the ancient Greeks had as their conviction that... uh, Light was shot out by the eyes, and that's what enabled people to see. So Ibn al Haytham, when put under house arrest by the Fatimid um, caliphs at that time, because of being under house arrest and having a hole in the wall, he was able to fashion that into an understanding that, in fact, what happens is light reflects off of objects, and therefore the eye sees. So what we're in danger of doing is crediting the people that tighten the constraints with the brilliance of the people who, despite their circumstances, are able to make great leaps for humanity. So the question also is, is that would these people, if they enjoyed state patronage rather than state restriction, not come out with equally, if not more, amazing ideas? We see from uh, history examples of people like Victor Jara in Chile. For example, during the Salvador Allende government, democratically elected government, he was patronized by the state. He enjoyed state sponsorship. The music he created was beautiful and spoke two and four millions. However, following the coup on September 11, 1973, backed by the British and US government and the introduction of General Pinochet as the ruler of Chile, uh, Victor Jara was imprisoned in Chile Stadium, along, five th- along with 5,000 other people. During his torture, he actually set about writing his last song, which was called Chile Stadium. It was an unfinished work which was smuggled out of the stadium by a friend of his who put it into his sock. This is a perfect example of state repression leading to somebody actually dying. So this idea of oppression creating great work, we also see the, the work that he created was actually unfinished. So It's very easy for us to sometimes philosophize about situations we have not lived through and pontificate about the possibility that oppression or state restriction somehow leads to greater art. So I would say that is my position on this.
2: Wonderful. Thank you. Very (laughs) strong gambit.
5: Uh, Let me ask you, uh, Joanna, is freedom vital for creativity to flourish? Reminds me a bit of the old Samizat joke. You know, yeah, I'm totally free. You know, I'm free to write my work myself. I'm free to edit it myself, free to publish it myself, free to go to jail myself. Mm. You know, I mean, this idea of freedom is obviously totally fundamental. So, I mean, I'm going to agree a lot with what Loki said, actually. Um, Original work, in whatever discipline we're, you know, defining it, whether we're talking about originality in science, as Loki's mentioned, or in art, in music, poetry, prose, it fundamentally requires a pushing at the limits all the time of what is known and what is acceptable and what is tasteful and decorous and it won't be original and innovative and exciting if it isn't fundamentally doing that so it may clash with precepts and conventions of course and that the artist and the creative person needs that freedom and if they're constantly anticipating some kind of control or censorship as a result of what they're doing in the privacy of their own creative realm, then they won't be free as they do that. Of course, that that external pressure will come into the creative process. And so there's that point about the creator, but there's also the point about the audience. You know, you don't create in a vacuum, ideally. So any form of censorship or control of what can be said or created implies that someone's gonna stand between the creator and the audience, and they make the decision for the audience about what the audience can know and see and hear, and who will do that? Who will be the censor? Who amongst us today would like to take that role will stand and say, I will decide what each one of us here is going to know about the world? So there's a crucial point in censorship about knowledge, that I think in a free society, we have the right to know as well what's being said and thought, so and I don't agree with the notion that oppression causes great art. Um, Salman Rushdie said it's a bit like saying it's so wonderful that man lost both his arms because now he paints so beautifully with the pe- you know the paintbrush in his mouth. You know it's a it's an invidious notion, of course. And try telling that to Garcia Lorca, who was murdered by Franco's thugs, or Radcliffe Hall, whose work was totally silenced because she. wrote about love between women, Um, try telling it to Ai Weiwei, who's been forced out of his own country and lost, you know, any contact day by day with his mother and his wife, you know, try telling that to them that the the pressure, therefore, means that you are the censored, and that's what you're the silenced, and your work is assessed on that premise as well. So all people talk about is that your work is censored, and that's what's happened to it. Um, So... This actually brings me this idea of silencing. Um, so it's not entirely the same as what we're talking about with formal constraints. And there's a question within the rubric about constraints and restraint as a formal suggestion. That doesn't necessarily oppress. Shakespeare wrote five act plays. Poets use stanzas and form, and you know musicians use musical forms, and I write novels. That's a to- that is a different thing. But it, you may have a kind of ideologue like Stalin who just likes realism and stops people like the Russian Absurdists from writing fantasy and imposes a restriction on a form that may be a form of oppression, but it's not necessarily linked. So I will end. Um, The art's an opinion about the world. It can be completely transformative and it has to be free. and who has not been radically inspired and transformed by works of art, even perhaps by those artists who've been banned and censored by Leonardo himself, Michelangelo, Voltaire, D.H. Lawrence, Radcliffe Hall, um, Nadine Gordimer, Salman Rushdie, Tony Morrison, Orhan Pamuk, Solzhenitsyn, Chan Kun Chung, Liu Xiao-bo. I could continue, alas. Um, Turgenev said, without freedom in the widest sense of the world, the artist is unthinkable. And Salman Rushdie, said, art is not entertainment, at its best, it is a revolution. Thanks. Wow, thank you.
2: <laughs> I feel quite invigorated by that. Um, Andrew, uh, lastly, you, is freedom vital for creativity to flourish?
4: The idea that, you, that art thrives on impression in a simple way is clearly ridiculous and very well said uh, by Loki and, and also by John. But what I wanted to do is slightly different, perhaps, a bit more thinking about form, which is something that we can continue to think about in the next few minutes. And I wanted to start by thinking about material circumstances, which is to say the degree of freedom is necessary for for creativity to exist, a degree of peace and quiet, a degree of provision, space, materials, and possibly, but not necessarily at the point of creation, a sense of audience, which begins to be, I think, part of your point. In fact, the sort of things that Virginia Woolf talks about in A Room of One's Own. Not even Solzhenitsyn and Mandelstam could have written without a modicum of these things. And it's very noticeable if you think about First World War poetry that Wilfred Owen and Sassoon wrote their best poems not at the front when they were under fire, oppression of a sort. It's not sort of narrowly political oppression, but of oppression of a sort. Didn't write their best poems at the front. They wrote their best poems when they were back in the war hospital in Craig Lockhart. But, and still thinking in material terms, is, it, is freedom vital for creativity to flourish? Which I think is the question you ask. Well, perhaps one might say that it This meets immediately a set of paradoxes. On the one hand, creativity depends on the acceptance of certain rules and restrictions, disciplines of language and form and utterance, which are the means by which mere convulsions of feeling become art. On the other hand, it depends on there being a sufficient freedom from actual constraint or punishment to get the work done. No one can write good poems with bombs raining down on them or their hands and feet tied up in a cell. It strikes me, and because we're approaching sort of anniversary, and I'll just end by saying this, it's quite interesting to think about the Peterloo Massacre in this respect. Two very good poems get written about the Peterloo Massacre. One is The Mask of Anarchy, Shelley's Mask of Anarchy, which is a direct kind of on-the-nose address to the political bigwigs of the time and a critique of them. And the other very good poem that gets written about the Peterloo Massacre is Keats' Ode to Autumn. And you, you know this. Keats wrote The Ode to Autumn, wrote The Ode to Autumn, a week or so after the Peterloo Massacre, and a lot of the things that he says in that poem, though it, it doesn't appear on the, uh, exactly on the surface of the poem, are responses to what he'd just seen in London when he met the people who'd come back from, who'd survived the massacre and come back to London to talk about it. So I think all I need really to say about that is that to think about how politics and the response to oppression in poems, appear in poems, we have to have the widest mind possible. Because it's there even when it doesn't appear to be so.
2: So uh, I want us to move on to the first team. But just to summarise quickly, Loki, I, from you, I'm getting a sense that you think that we're in danger of misattributing genius. Um, Joanna, I think you've been talking about freedom from conventions and the danger of taste and um, censorship and the decorative. Um, And Andrew, you've been moving towards a more formal argument, both about the material conditions in which art, art is made, but also the constraints of form. And I want to move, first of all, to the question of form before we get to more of the politics. So Joanna, I want to ask you this about how far these rules and constraints, these formal rules and constraints, provide a framework for art. And you're a novelist, and the novel is supposed to be novel every time, right? That's the point of the novel. I'm thinking of Henry James saying that the novel is a loose baggy monster, but to to its detriment. But as a novelist, it seems to me that you are by necessity curtailed by particularities of this form.
5: Yes, I think so that there is always formal structure. I mean, when you speak, now we're speaking, we're using a limited system which we all broadly concur on. And if you really want to subvert that in a novel, of course, you can um, You can become Joyce and write Ulysses and test people's tolerance for neologism, and that's fine, that's your choice. Um, but there's always going to be a structure. So you have you know, the heroic quest, a massive structure, which again, Ulysses, Mrs. Dalloway, they're reusing that form to try and express a new vision of the world. Or the apostolic tradition in Fight Club, which is the kind of sage and pupil tradition that goes all the way back through socrates and plato jesus and the disciples but chuck palanuk takes it in the fight club and those of you who've read or seen it you know develops it in a completely different way about the annihilation of all authority essentially so you can always adapt forms and use them and picasso when he asks what is a face and creates all those wonky portraits of noses and eyes in different parts of the face he's not testing the convention of the canvas placed on the wall, he's not very interested in testing that formal convention. He's more interested in the philosophical adaptation and revolution that he wants to effect. So I don't think it's necessarily an oppression. I said that some regimes will have very strong opinions about formal constraints. And I use the example of Stalin, who really oppressed his anti-realists, Bulgakov, Daniel Carms, you know, he didn't like anti-realism. He wanted so-called realism. Obviously, these were propagandist fantasies dressed up as social realism, but that was the distinction he enforced and silenced artists who didn't comply. And, Andrew, you've mentioned Shelley and, and Keats. What about you? What's
2: your process like? I want, I, don't you find yourself wrestling... With iambic pentameter, do you not wish? You I've not got fed up with the iambic pentameter. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wonder what your poetic process is. It must be coming up against the limit of a form in order for it yes, to be poetry. Yes, and
4: actually, well, there is an idea that people who are interested in free verse have just kind of thrown everything out of the window, and they're simply convulsing in response to whatever has hacked them on the life on the ankle in in life. But. Of course, free verse must establish its own rules, in the same way that jazz must establish its own rules, in the same way that Schoenberg, having abandoned one form of musical orientation, then seeks to find another, to, in some sense to replace it or to stand in its place. So that, in, in an important sense, there isn't such a thing as entirely free verse. Living in America as I now do, I'm very struck by how much more free, more nearly free contemporary American poetry is than British poetry. In other words, whether we like it or not, whatever forms we adopt, we're always trying to find ways to push against, this is your phrase, I think, against the limits of things in order to establish our authenticity. There really isn't such a thing as entire freedom within a form. And certainly as critics, if we're looking with a very, if if we find ourselves looking at a very adventurous form, a form that we might not have come across before, we're still looking for ways in which it coheres. We Instinctively, we want to see how it works in that sort of way. As it happens, and more narrowly to answer your question, as I've got older, I've got more impatient with strict forms and more interested in trying to find ways of writing poems that are more to do with breath than writing villanelles, as it were. So I have, in my way, tried to extend things.
2: Well, that sounds like you should talk to Loki. <laughs> well, well,
4: one of the oddities, um, and I'd be very interested to in know what you feel about this, of living in the, as I used to do in the, in the British poetic culture, is that you would think that the ends of the spectrum had nothing to say to each other. That is nonsense. They have a great deal to say to each other. And the stuff that you do when you stand up and do it does not necessarily sound very like what I say when I stand up and do it, but actually very similar principles are at work here, I think.
3: I think the interesting uh, direction that we're taking this is in terms of forms and the way that that can then, to some extent, potentially, and and I'm kind of reluctant to say it, but it can imprison you within a certain direction. So, for instance, I have a song called Alphabet Assassin, which I said that every four bars would be of alliteration. So, for A, every word would begin with A, for B, every word would begin with B, the, and I went through the alphabet and did that. But the point was, with that, is I do feel that in terms of style, I was able to do something quite strong. But in terms of substance, I believe that giving myself that kind of template of something to write slightly paid the price. But with the first time I did it was 2009. And the last time I did it was 2017, and I felt in 2017 I was actually able to create something with a lot more substance. However, I think I paid the price to a certain extent in terms of style with alliteration of where the words were falling. I'm
2: desperate to hear that, but I'm not going to make you perform, (coughs) because I think we'd, um, we'd have to pay you a lot more.
3: Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level.
2: Um, But I want to move on to the next theme, um, which is um, why does oppression appear to produce great works of art? And actually, maybe I'll pick you up, Loki, because my understanding from the outside of the hip-hop scene and grime more recently which has become increasingly popular and um, institutionalised I guess, uh, and music of black origin or of colour that it very often comes from or it's seen to, see, seen to be coming from an experience of relative deprivation or it has a political context um, is, that an ex- is that an explanation of it? Is that is there a problem in explaining that music in that way? What do you think?
3: Well I think to lead on from what you're saying, you know, we live in the shadow of the war on terror. you know it's gone on longer than World War I and World War II put together. and w- part of what we have witnessed from the kind of um, backlash in some way, uh, the blowback from the war on terror has been for select citizens a death of habeas corpus. So what I mean by that is that you have a situation where people within this country can be detained without ever uh, being able to have access to the evidence against them or being judged by a jury of their peers. We live in a time when a child from a Muslim family, shall we say, or a family that are racialized as Muslims, can be sitting in class learning about the Magna Carta and all of the rights that that affords them simultaneously, they could have a family member imprisoned, and again, like I said, without ever seeing the evidence held against them, without ever um, being judged by a jury of their peers and possibly being extradited to the United States, that child themselves could also simultaneously be reported to prevent for wearing a badge which says Free Palestine. That's the context within which we live. And myself as an Iraqi who was here throughout the 2003 war, my feeling of what can and can't be said, what can and can't be questioned, what violence is sacred and what violence is benign, has been something that I have actually felt constraints from. So if I decide to visualise in my music the violence of an arms company like BAE Systems, there are repercussions in my private life. And what I mean by that is detained in airports. What I mean by that is... You know, in some cases, the BBC not wanting to play certain songs or have me on at certain times. Say, for instance, I was due to be on Tim Westwood's show on September the 11th, 2011, and I was rung up at the last minute and said, uh, we don't want you on there. And the reason they didn't want me on there is because it was September the 11th. And And this is something that is when you are able to invisibilize the contours and mechanisms of power, what then happens to those who see it and who want to speak about it? And so, in kind of answering to your point, there is art that is being created during these times of actually immense horror, of actually immense horror. And there are people that see that horror, there are people that try and speak about it, try and deal with it, try and find a way to heal through art during these times. But I think those people really are on the front line of those that are being silenced. I feel like human you're saying
2: spirit. that art might come from an experience of discontent or deprivation, but it's also an eloquent response to it. But also, you might suffer the repercussions of it.
3: But also, also the examples we have of people that have done that is actually a testament to the human spirit that has existed. You know, for instance, there's an amazing book by P- Peter uh, Victor, sorry, Frankel, who oh. survived. Um, the Holocaust, and what he said to himself is that I constantly would picture myself surviving this terrible, um, this terrible situation, and lecturing about it afterwards. And he drew strength um, from the saying that a person who has a why can bear any how. And the point is that I think that art strengthens um, and consolidates the spirit in that way.
2: And it, I wonder if, if the opposite of being a Loki, if you're somebody who isn't the person you are, um, if you live in a, a free and indolent society... Do you produce really shit art? Are you lazy and uninspired? Are you Ed Sheeran, basically? If you're not low uh,
3: No, <laughs> I know him. I think he's great, actually. <laughs> yeah. I don't think his You would be very
2: politic about that. Ed Sheeran. No, great. No, no,
3: I, I, I literally <laughs> don't think he's bad. But I think um, what's interesting, that I was just thinking about during this um, process, and again, um, your question kind of leads into it slightly, was the experience of Paul Robeson. You know, this was a singer who was born to a father that was born into slavery, who was campaigning against lynching in the United States following the Second World War alongside Albert Einstein in a situation where you literally had people returning from the Second World War in army fatigues being lynched. And Paul Robeson took it upon himself, along with Einstein and others, to really take on these issues at that time, he'd been a trained lawyer but was not allowed to practice law because of his race and uh, then was taking it upon himself to deal with this stuff even you know, though he had this massive fame as a singer. You know, he created songs in over 20 languages. It doesn't mean he spoke them, but he created songs in over 20 languages. The appeal that he had to sing to people all over the world, from China to elsewhere, you know, led to a situation where this man's passport was taking, taken away from him. And I think one point um, that Andrew made prior to this was that within this situation, when he had to do a show in Canada, they did a show right on the border between the United States and Canada with him on the side of the United States and hundreds of thousands of people on the other side. He came over to Britain and went and performed for Welsh miners. Um, and this was really the strength of Paul Robeson's spirit. But what we saw was his trajectory, whereby in a nutritional fashion, he was worn down. He spent the last 20 or so years of his life a recluse and, and, and unwilling to come out and perform and make music. So we saw how that way of wearing him down, because he refused to you know, play into the McCarthyite um, atmosphere which existed in the United States and the way that suppressed not only artists but even teachers in schools and universities, he was unwilling kind of play along with that. In terms of just quickly to answer your question, um, as we've all made clear, people work within their context and the things that come out are reflective of what they feel um, are issues that need to be dealt with in that day. You know, freedom is very much socially constructed. Our concept of freedom today is not the concept that some some, not necessarily a majority, but a sizable proportion of British society at the time of the Peterloo Massacre, would have had a freedom. Their idea of freedom was, with: we are land-owning people, and it is right that we have the right to vote, and these people who are not landowners do not have the right to vote. This is freedom. So within our lifetime, it's very easy for us to say, okay, well... It's very also easy for us to forget the lessons of the past and to forget that the right of people to vote who do not own property was three centuries of struggle, yeah. actually, you know. and, and, and
2: I, th- I think it's always really <coughs> important to, to remember that. And you've sort of moved us into the, the third theme, which is precisely this definition of freedom. Mm-hmm. And... I guess I want to ask you what it would look like, the work that we would produce in a completely free society, in a a society that was free for everybody, not just for a certain percentage. And I I thought I might ask you first, Joanna, that um, I think maybe we live in an age where we have this anxiety about censorship, about cultural appropriation, about infringing the snowflake snowflake sensibilities of, of people. Do we live in a culture that is curtailing creativity, do you think?
5: Um, Yeah, I think, so if the basis of any democracy, any free democracy is freedom of expression, then yes, we have a lot of legislation now that curtails freedom of expression. Yes, I think that, and that's happened in the last... 15, 20 years, we've had a new... So the the arguments of John Stuart Mill in On Liberty are now quite radical, the idea that a truly free society would permit absolute freedom of expression. The arguments of John Milton, actually, in *Areopagitica* from 1644, also sound quite radical, because we've entered this strange notion, this relativist notion, that actually we should curtail voluntarily and through our legal system. But there's a huge difference, actually, and I think this is... The Marquis de Sade is quite a good example of this. Um, a good example of many things, but of this. Um, <laughs> you know, the Marquis de Sade, <laughs> Bad he's, friendly, he's raised as an example of censorship. Well, the Marquis de Sade, his works are, as we know, pretty out there in terms of pushing limits and shocking and being obscene. Um, would you censor him for his works? I wonder here, who would censor the Marquis de Sade on the basis of obscene, disgusting works? No one. Well, that's, that's very interesting to see. However, the Marquis de Sade dragged serving, you know, women and peasants and widows into his chateau and, you know, sexually abused and harassed and raped them. Would we put him in prison for that? There's a huge difference, you know, it's words and deeds, and I think that difference is really crucial, actually, and it's a very important difference, I think, that we're losing somewhat, I feel. What what about you for for you, Andrew?
4: It's very, very difficult to answer that, I think. I mean, I... I've, I've just said this before, and I'm sorry to say it again, but in America, I think we're even more on eggshells about a lot of this stuff than you are here. I mean, I certainly feel when I'm teaching my students at Johns Hopkins that um, there are all kinds of things I have to warn them about ahead of time that I probably wouldn't have warned people ahead of time about in the UK. Um, there are all kinds of sensitivities which I'm alive to. I mean, it's very, very striking, this. So they're alert, they are self-conscious, about their circumstances in a, in a different way there, and with that, and I, you know, I love my job, and I'm, my, I have wonderful students, so this is not against them at all. But but with that comes a certain awareness on my part of what I have to kind of walk around carefully. So possibly the answer is
0: yes.
2: Well, that that brings up another question about the material conditions in which art is made, and I think that for lots of people the uh, art can feel rather elite, Mm -hmm. and the material conditions have to be very particular in order to produce a certain kind of art. And if we had a vision, a broader vision of art, a more free vision of creativity, would that mean it would be more diverse?
3: Yeah, and I think really there should be more money being put into projects and more um, inclusive. So for instance, in my case, I won something called the BBC Performing Arts Fund in 2009 and was given £10,000. Now, with that £10,000, I was able to make, you know, art which I consider, especially at that time, quite subversive. But the fact that I was able to do that, you know, had I been in a situation where I was working in a supermarket, for instance, I don't want to say a big name brand, working in a supermarket, would I have had the time that I needed, that that... Afforded me, so I think that that kind of relationship between how we foster and cultivate people's creativity in society is something that you know needs to yeah. be looked at. Really,
4: can I s- say one more th- thing? Which I, I mean, that I take all that absolutely. Which I rather forgot to say in what I was saying earlier, which is I think the the, the last paragraph of what I was trying to say earlier goes something like, um, "So the room is full of people who are self-conscious in the ways that I tried to describe." and the things that they're writing in my workshops are almost exclusively about identity. And the default setting of contemporary American poetry is very, very strikingly to do with identity for all kinds of extremely good and interesting reasons in a way that it isn't quite over here. I mean, there's a lot of that going on over here, but it's much more marked over there. In other words, it's left me or it's given me the feeling that I'm living in a very, very late moment of capital romanticism. Um, And I think there's, as I've already said, a great deal to be said in favor of that, because it means that people can say, I exist, whoever they are, and I matter, I can't, listen to me. That's all clearly excellent. But at the same time, if it means that some sort of coherent, some idea of the political gathering and sweep and thing is... Is lost in the process, and that's clearly a problem. Oh, sorry, go
3: on. Do you yeah, think I, that's. I, yeah, sorry. No, go, go,
5: go for it, because I've got a different point, okay. which is about to say, <laughs> really, yeah, if you want to respond. Uh, on no, I
3: just wanted to say, do you think that is in some way a result of a kind of narcissism that's encouraged on some level?
4: A little bit. It's society? not the only explanation of it, but it, I think that does come into it. I think it's to do with, I mean, again, a, a, a large political pressure being exerted, which of course forces people at some point to say, but it's me. I mean, that's, so that's what's going on.
5: Joe, you were gonna say something then, okay. um, Yeah, it was slightly a slightly different point. I mean, I don't know if it, but I would just, it was something, because Andrew was talking about things that we'd remembered we'd forgotten. So Quite. I remembered I'd forgotten, Quite. which <laughs> was about the beloved bill, this sort of idea that, so Tony Morrison's beloved, there was a call in uh-huh. Virginia to censor it or to offer schools the opportunity it was to lists. that yeah. it should not be read. And the, the basis was that it was very tasteless and it referred to sexual violence and violence and incest and rape. And this sort of idea, this is why this freedom is so important. If you're going to represent the incredibly tasteless activities of history and the incredibly tasteless things that are happening in the world at the moment, you need to have the opportunity yourself to convey this. And the idea that you then penalise the person trying to represent the history of slavery, by saying, oh, it's a bit tasteless. You know, I think that's a truly dire... Really,
4: really.
2: What would the artwork look like, whether it's poetry, music, or visual culture? What would it look like to produce art with complete freedom, formal freedom,
5: political freedom, the freedom of material conditions? In a way, it wouldn't be political, and actually Nadine Gordimer makes this point. She said in 1976, when she was writing Under Apartheid and her works were banned, she said, you know, if you're in a system where you're constantly seen as politicised by a regime that wants to shut you down, all art becomes a political weapon, and you're forced into this political position. You can't be an individual artist and represent a unique vantage point. It's always rendered into something else. So possibly that, and that's what I mean about censored artists, you know, that it, that it becomes the thing of their work, like Ai Weiwei. That is the thing that even if you've never seen anything by him, you know of it. So I think that may be that you'd actually have the freedom to represent a distinctive vantage point. Andrew?
4: That, which is very important, I think, and I was something I was hoping to sort of in the background of what I was saying about Seamus very early on... Um, the freedom to choose your subjects, in other words, not to have the sort of pressure of your circumstances cramp you to feel that you only can respond to them in a very direct way. And related to that, the idea which we talked about in relation to Keats, that maybe the best way of approaching a difficult subject is not necessarily through the front door, but kind of round the back or down the chimney or whatever <laughs> it, it might be. Down the chimney. Very good, <laughs> down the chimney. Yeah.
2: That um, sounds like your new album, Loki. Down the chimney. <laughs> what does it look like for you?
3: Well, I think that actually reminded me of something Mahmoud Darwish, the, uh, Palestinian the legendary poet. Palestinian poet. Um, not long before he died, he said, "I'm actually tired of being imprisoned in my Palestinianness." I'm kind of paraphrasing it, but the point was is that he constantly was in a situation where he felt he had to, you know, for instance, he has uh, a lyric in a poem called Feku <laughs> biqherak," think of others. He says, While you are liberating yourselves with metaphors, think of others who lost their right to speak. And so he constantly felt that pull towards those that lost the right to speak. You know, While he himself went through problems of censorship, problems of traveling from place to place, eventually he achieved such a social status that he in a way traveled above people who had been turned into refugees, as he had been as a young child. But he always felt that responsibility, which is I think what you're talking about, towards those people and covering and presenting their stories and being an ambassador for them to the world. So I think it's quite an interesting point.
2: The presenters are always curtailed by time, sadly. So we have run out of time. Please could I ask you to join me in thanking our speakers, Andrew Motion, Joanna
1: Kavanagh, and Loki. If you enjoyed this episode of Philosophy for Our Times, why not delve deeper into creativity? Take a listen to episode 153 and join Ben Stanley, Justin Collata, and Sam Roddock in asking what is beauty? Find out whether Plato's ideals of beauty as truth and goodness have been superseded by the profitability and consumption of figures such as Kim Kardashian. Or, if you'd like to hear more from our panellists on today's episode, why not listen to episode 16 and hear Joanna Kavanagh grasp with eternity and debate Stanley Fish and Barry C. Smith on whether, like the material world, ideas are in fact transient. As ever, please do subscribe to Philosophy for Our Times to make sure you never miss the big ideas such as these. Head over to iTunes, give us a rating and review, tell anyone you know that might be interested, and of course, tune in next week for more debates and talks from the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas.